Hello, and welcome to our podcast. Today we'll be discussing the dispossession of indigenous peoples in the United States, how it started, how it continues, and the ways in which some people are attempting to start giving things back. As we've discussed in this class, the oppression of indigenous people in this country has permeated every era and every form. The story of the conquest as told by the anonymous authors of Tlatelolco, or Broken Spears, provides a lens for this discussion, as told from the point of view of indigenous authors and written in Nahuatl in 1528. When Hernan Cortez and his men first colonized Tlatelolco, most of their people and their possessions were forcibly stolen and or destroyed. Additionally, the land, items, and culture that were once precious were now degraded. As the text accounts, Gold, jade, rich cloths, quetzal feathers, everything that was once precious was now considered worthless. In addition, they were often forced to surrender their remaining items. Defining and redefining themselves in the eye of a colonial power are some of the largest themes we found in Tlatelolco and in the field of repatriation. Along with their items, their identity was taken and dehumanized. To quote, They set a price on all of us, on young men, the priests, the boys, and the girls. The price of a poor man was only two handfuls of corn, or ten cakes made from mosses, or twenty cakes of salty couchgrass. The people who survived this genocide and their descendants have been and continue to be brutalized, and despite it all, they are surviving, visible, active members of our society. But what of their possessions? Where are the remains of their ancestors, their remnants and artifacts? Part of the answer is museums. As is the way with colonial structures, archaeologists who have, quote, discovered these remains have been collecting them for decades, preserving them as showpieces of what is made to seem like a bygone era. In 1989, Native leaders discovered that the Smithsonian Institution held more than 18,000 Native remains, mostly in storage. In response to the controversy that emerged, United States Senator Daniel Inouye introduced the National Museum of the American Indian Act. It established the National Museum of the American Indian, a branch of the Smithsonian, as a home for these artifacts, somewhere that could serve as a, quote, living memorial to Native Americans and their traditions. In addition to establishing the museum, the act also required that human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony to be considered for repatriation to tribal communities, as well as objects acquired illegally. Repatriation means giving indigenous people back, upon their request and detailed investigation, the things that are being held in the museum. Since 1989, the Smithsonian has repatriated over 5,000 individual remains, about one-third of the total estimated human remains that are in its collection. To learn more about this process, we spoke to Dr. Risa Arbolino, an anthropologist who works in the repatriation office at the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. I'm Risa Arbolino. I'm a repatriation research specialist at the National Museum of American Indian, which is part of the Smithsonian Institution. Thanks for having me. Working in the Office of Repatriation means that she helps identify and categorize artifacts, investigate repatriation claims, and participate in repatriation ceremonies. Before launching into our discussion with Dr. Arbolino, there are a few red flags we should acknowledge. For one, calling the museum a, quote, memorial to Native Americans and their traditions, unquote, implies that there are no Native people left and erases their continued contributions to society, as well as the suffering they continue to experience. Another red flag is that the Repatriation Act attempts to decolonize, but functions within the restraints of a colonial institution. It is founded on the colonial premise that the remains are the property of the United States government, 
and not the indigenous people. These are just a few things that stood out to us, and we invite you to listen skeptically to this interview with Dr. Arbolino. To kick things off, we wanted to know how she got involved. I kind of fell into repatriation work by accident. I was an anthropology major at Columbia as an undergrad, and then I did an an archaeological field school when I was undergraduate as well, so I had a little bit of archaeology background, and then I did an internship at the American Museum of Natural History during my senior year, and sparked an interest in museums there for sure, but I didn't know anything about repatriation. And then after I graduated, actually still have the newspaper advertisement because they had job announcements in the newspapers back then for a repatriation assistant at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And so I was like, they were looking for an anthropology slash archaeologist anthropologist slash archaeologist with an undergraduate degree. And I was like, okay, that's me. I don't know what this is, but I'm going to apply. And I did. And somehow I got the job, not really knowing what it was. And I was kind of just hooked on that work. It was really <clears throat> challenging and rewarding. It was, that was at the very beginning of all repatriation. It was in the early nineties and it just, everything was so new and just a, a really rewarding sort of career path to start on. So that's what got me hooked. And I went to grad school and then ended up in Washington, D.C. and have been doing repatriation work at the Smithsonian in various capacities since then. So it should be noted that Dr. Arbolino is not of Native's descent. It was a little uncomfortable that she seemed to have stumbled into the field without realizing its gravity. But anyways, I digress. The unfortunate truth is that the only person who agreed to interview with us was a white Columbia alum. I mean, I guess you didn't know much about the job in general before starting. What was the, Were there things that were surprising in a good or bad way about that work? Or challenge? I think just at the beginning, um, it was just so emotional mm. for folks who came to the, I mean, and I, you know, I've done so many tribal consultations now in a museum setting, like over time people have, there's still emotions, but people have gotten used to the process and visiting these collections and their ancestors. At the beginning, it was so raw. I mean, it just was, every encounter was just full of emotion. And, you know, so dealing with that, you know, at the beginning was difficult. I mean, rewarding too, when it, you know, everybody got what they wanted in the end, <laughs> but it was, it is a very difficult beginning for folks coming to, you know, people who had never seen these museum collections, never didn't know their ancestors were in these museums. And it was very emotional at the beginning. Well, I think that's a perfect segue into our question about the repatriation ceremonies. In the description of the repatriation process, it's noted that the museum has an indoor room for repatriation ceremonies. So what are those ceremonies like? And in your many years working in repatriation, is there a certain ceremony that has been particularly moving for you? Because as you said, it's very emotional. Every group community has their own ceremonies and different things that they do when they come. So we also have a, we have an indoor and an outdoor ceremonial space and they are uh, indoor space probably more. So it's very well used when people come to visit the collections, when repatriations occur, often what happens is folks are preparing the items or the ancestors to go home. So that's an important piece of it. For me, I would say On a personal level, there was part of a ceremony where I was given a name by a tribe, and that was really rewarding. So, and the name I was given means longtime woman for like the length of time that I had worked with this tribe on repatriation. And I had worked with them in actually three different institutions, repatriation work. So that was really nice. Otherwise, 
Yeah, there was one in particular I can think of where the elders sang to us for about two and a half hours straight while we were packing the ancestors for their return home. And that was intense and emotional and really um, just very vivid in my mind in terms of a memory of, of something I've Thank you for sharing. For context, we wanted to look into what one of these ceremonies would sound like. For the Umatilla, Warm Springs, and Yakima nations, it sounds something like this. The voiceover for this sound is the indigenous language of Maori, which sadly clues us in to the only people reporting on repatriation ceremonies, which in this case is the only indigenous-run news station in so-called New Zealand, reporting on the repatriation of items in a Canterbury museum in the UK. The voiceover tells us that a delegation of indigenous tribes was received at the Museum of Canterbury to receive the remains of their ancestors that are believed to have been stolen from the burial island on the Columbia River. The repatriation ceremony is the last step in a very long process. If native people want something from a museum, they have to make a request through their nation's leader, go through a lot of paperwork, and have multiple consultation visits to see if the request is eligible to be approved under the current legal framework. We asked Dr. Arbolino what some of that nitty-gritty identification process looks like. It's generally uh, just a long research and consultation. <laughs> so it's um, sort of two aspects to it where we're working with the tribal representatives to figure out what they're claiming, then doing the research and gathering information from them about their whatever evidence they might have to make the case for cultural affiliation or that something needs uh, category definition from the law, then a lot of background research on our end for the archival work and, you know, published ethnographic information and sometimes genealogical research. We use Ancestry.com a lot and historical newspaper research to try to piece together. It's a little bit of detective work on our end. So it's sometimes just very methodical in terms of the research. And then sometimes it's more complicated because we're trying to think through really complicated issues with the tribes and trying to figure out, okay, well, what is a funerary object? You know, it's not just what archaeologists say it is. <laughs> you know, there's different definitions and different ways of looking at things. So it's that interchange and consultation process between the museum and, and the tribe. Yeah, well, that segues perfectly into our next question, which was exactly about that distinction of what counts and what doesn't. Um, on the webpage about repatriation policies, it says that one common misconception about the program is that the majority of the collections at some point will be repatriated when, in fact, less than 3% of the collections even fall within the four primary legal categories of eligible items. So human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony, which as you're saying, I'm sure that can be easily disputed of what counts as a cultural or sacred object. So what other kinds of artifacts, though, are those other 97% um, that are not eligible for repatriation? And why do you think they weren't included in that act? So let me preface this by saying that the la that particular language is um, 
sorely outdated and we are in the process of updating our website, but it is, our web team is a little behind and it's actually been a few years since we've given them the new text and they haven't put it up yet. That particular sentence is not something we would want to say right now. So you are the second group of students to find that sentence. <laughs> and I, so I, I would like, even if we can't update the rest of it, I would like to delete that sentence. So we're trying to work on that. But so I, we can't dictate what meets those categories other than the human remains, obviously that's a concrete, but even that has some gradations mm -hmm. A loose tooth. Is that a human remain? Um, part of a scalp is that a human remain that that's not really up to us. That's up to the tribes and the communities. So I don't think we would make that statement today about percentages. So the law does cover those certain categories. So it sort of purposely left out, you know, more utilitarian items that were used in an everyday setting that didn't have a ceremonial aspect to them. But there's been some pushback on that. It's interesting. We've worked with some Canadian groups recently in the past couple of years, and Canada does not have the same repatriation laws that we do. And so when the Canadian groups come in, they have a much broader view of what sacred means. And they might include, you know, an axe or a fishing basket or, you know, think it's more about importance than it is about ceremony for them. So I think there is some push a little bit to maybe rethink those categories. I'm not sure the law will necessarily change, but museums might change in how they approach some of those issues. And there are some, the Museum of Us. It used to be the San Diego Museum of Man is doing some really interesting work in their decolonization efforts to sort of reach out and say, you tell us, <laughs> you know, what what you think is, is sacred. So the museums are rethinking it. So That's really good to hear. <laughs> I was, I was really, I was like, what? I, I, I. And I, I had the first student who found that I was like, that's on our website. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so we, it, it is, that's, yes. I apologize for that. Thank you for the clarification. That's good, good progress. It was interesting to see Dr. Arbolino react to our question in this way. It's definitely a step in the right direction that they're moving towards allowing the indigenous people to define what counts as theirs, but it still feels bizarre that they have to be fighting so hard through so many legal hoops to take back what is rightfully theirs in the first place. Thinking back to Broken Spears, the fight to take back what is rightfully theirs is at the center of the historical account. At the end of the war between the Tlatelucas and Cortez, the indigenous group presents all the gold they have left. They collected many rings, lip plugs, nose plugs, and other ornaments. They searched anyone who might be hiding objects of gold behind his shield or under his clothing. To have the smallest amount of recognition, just a place to live outside of their home city, the Tlatelucas had to give up every single one of the last treasures they have. To this day, the fight for cultural objects with the colonial power is in the hands of the museums, and sometimes they do not agree to give the requested objects back. You mentioned that you were first interested in museums, and like, I imagine like the curation and politics that come along with like museums, and sort of talking about indigenous artifacts in various museums around the world. Think about the British Museum is the one that comes to my mind. Like, do you think that you've ever experienced similar controversies? Like, I guess since you have this repatriation office, I'm not sure this happens as much, but yeah. where a, a tribe 
has wanted an item back and they can't get it back or something like that. Yeah, I guess that's the general question. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, in my entire career, yes, that has definitely happened. Or maybe a tribe didn't get, get it back in exactly the way they wanted to get it back. You know, nuances of definitions. There, I, you know, I think times have changed at the beginning. There certainly was some institutional resistance, I think, in some museums, and maybe still now today in some places, but um, to just the idea of repatriation. And so sometimes the bar is set higher than it needs to be, I think. And, you know, there were definitely, you know, times in my career where I had to fight for, you know, it's interesting working in, in repatriation it's you're sort of an advocate for your museum but also an advocate for the tribes that you're working with so you have to kind of present both arguments if they're at odds at all and so you know I've definitely had to advocate at times I have encountered resistance but that's like I said it's it's changed <laughs> a lot of that has changed so which is good and yeah, you get a whole new crop of students and people who've studied decolonization, which, you know, old guard curators at a lot of these museums did not. <laughs> so repatriation is a complicated process. It seems like there are certainly kinks in the process, even if it's a step in the right direction. But still, it begs the question, why do Indigenous people need to beg the museums to give them their possessions back to begin with? Shouldn't the museums be asking permission? What is the function of having all of the artifacts in one place? And how is a museum working to represent Native history in an accurate way? So for the, the texts we read in our seminar, which were Broken Spears and Columbus's letter to the King of Portugal, the representation of the violence against Indigenous people was extremely dif different depending on who wrote the text. And so thinking about historical perspective, do you think that the National Museum of the American Indian historically has represented indigenous people in an accurate way? And kind of additionally, do you think that there's progress to be done on that front today? Yeah, so our institution had a long history before it became part of the Smithsonian. So in 1989, when the National American Indian Act was passed, that was the repatriation legislation for the Smithsonian and the creation of the National Museum of American Indian. Prior to it becoming part of the Smithsonian, I'm not sure that my next answers would apply. So <laughs> I'm talking about from, you know, 1989 yeah. when it became part of the Smithsonian. So um, I think the answer is yes, we have done a good job. We're always evolving and always trying to better the way that we tell the story of Native peoples of the whole Western Hemisphere. It's a big task. And so Obviously, we're not always perfect at it, but one of the things at the beginning, the inception of the museum when it became part of the Smithsonian was the idea of community curation. And so there were just the inaugural exhibits were all collaborative in a way that really hadn't been on a scale, I guess, that really hadn't been done before. So I think there was this tremendous effort to do something different. We called ourselves the museum different. <laughs> and then over time, we've done some really interesting topical things. Like we, right now we have a exhibit on treaties and sort of telling the sort of nuanced and real story of some of the issues with treaties in the United States with United States tribes. So, and we've also done non-exhibit 
sort of advocacy work like we at the it's interesting to see the arc of it but like with mascots so we had held one of the first symposia on mascots and really got the conversation started a few years ago and it's finally getting somewhere <laughs> so we we have an advocacy role as well social justice is now part of our mission statement and it wasn't before and the other really big thing that we've done is something called Native Knowledge 360, which is an education effort to have a more accurate portrayal of Native history to be incorporated into United States public school curriculum. So that is, I think, one of the coolest things we've done, honestly. It's really neat. Absolutely, because to your point, I mean, I mean, the, the museum exists in its own space, but then to bring that out into the community is super important. So it's cool yeah. to hear about all that work that y'all are doing. Thank you. <laughs> but you know, that being said, like it's it's an ongoing process. We'll never, you know, even though we're trying all these different things, and we, you know, it, we're we're still a colonial institution and in, in inception, and that's a sort of constant process of undoing, I guess. And there we go. That's the big hitter. We're still a colonial institution, she said, and there needs to be a constant process of undoing. Where does this conversation leave us? On one hand, it seems that NMAI is doing good work in education and internship programs, supporting young Native scholars, keeping them involved on their boards and research teams, and working within the bounds of the colonial legal system to try and start giving back as many of their rightfully owned possessions as possible give them the opportunity to have funerary rituals for their ancestors' remains, and have them rest in peace. On the other hand, this is the crazy thing about trying to decolonize fundamentally colonial institutions. The power structures inherent to repatriation processes are bizarre and backwards because the power structures of colonialism are bizarre and backwards. Even in Broken Spears, the colonizers recognized that the Tlatelolpas were, quote, being mistreated at the end of our selected reading on page 142. By examining this office out the Smithsonian and relating it to Broken Spears, it becomes evident that decolonization cannot be fully realized through the colonial systems that exist. As this interview demonstrates, we need to be wary of programs that claim to decolonize which are led, designed, and funded by fundamentally colonial institutions. The idea that a museum has the right to own these artifacts to begin with, perhaps as Locke might argue because they've labored to retrieve it, and are thus in a position to negotiate returning it to natives, is backwards and upsetting. We came into this interview hopeful that decolonization efforts are occurring, but we've left it even more confused than when we started. We don't have the answer to how to rightfully decolonize the Smithsonian right now, and clearly, neither does Dr. Arbolino.